Good morning. Welcome once again. I'll be reading scripture this morning out of Matthew 19. When I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And as a church, we will prayerfully respond with, speak, Lord, your servants here. So Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, God has joined together let not men separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and I'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today with a potentially divisive passage, and I pray that you just allow us to come together in unity and just see your redemptive process, just the perfect picture that you have provided us and our consistent growth and sanctification towards you. Bless Mike as he preaches. Allow us to have open hearts and open minds and be filled with your spirit. Amen. All right. Once again, if you're a guest with us uh, this morning, welcome. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here in Taproot Church. Um, we've been working through the gospel of Matthew. We uh, took a few weeks off from Matthew. Um, last Sunday, I really missed you all. I was preaching at Twin Falls Community Church. Is it community? Yes, it's community. It's, it's always either a community or Christian. I just, it's community. Anyways. Uh, we support Twin Falls Community Church. They, they planted like two years ago, and uh, so their pastor, Aaron Scott, invited me to preach, and so I just said, sure. Um, and it was good, but man, I missed y'all, uh, so I'm happy to be back here this morning. Uh, we're uh, in Matthew 19, as, as we can tell, as we, as we read. Um, yeah, so I just, as we get into this text here this morning, I just want to kind of uh, intro with just a few a few thoughts, a few things. Uh, first off, I just want to say I know that it has been a slow go for us in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've been here since 2019, uh, but I would say there were some things that you know got in the way, COVID and such. I don't know if y'all remember that. Um, and you know we took a break and kind of worked through some Psalms and then kind of picked back up in Matthew. And then we've uh, uh, last summer we took a break and went through Proverbs because Matthew is. Uh, and really, in part, we understand the whole of Scripture in line with wisdom literature, but Matthew in particular uh, really resonates with wisdom Scripture, and so we found ourselves 
uh, in Proverbs, and, and then we've just been slowly moving through the Gospel of Matthew. And I just, I want you all to know that uh, this is intentional, right? That the, what we do and why we do it is for a purpose. And one of those main purposes that I would love to just point out to us is that um, we exist in a culture that is throwing information at us at breakneck speed, right? Like, we're constantly being bombarded with information just on a regular basis. And if we're not a people who are grounded in sound doctrine, we will, as the Apostle Paul says, be very easily just pushed around and pushed over. Uh, and so just as a reminder, I was, you know, I was thinking through this, and uh, Paul, in Ephesians 4, he says this. He says that uh, he, that is Christ, gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, it's all of us who are followers of Jesus, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so as we've been working through the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, there's been periodic moments in which we've slowed way down. For example, like the Sermon on the Mount. It took us a year or something like that. Uh, but the Sermon on the Mount is just so foundational for us, right? And, and, and so many things in the Gospel of Matthew connect back to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and then you take, for example, we spent five weeks in Matthew 18. And that was just because that was really pertinent to where we were and, and where we are as a church. And so it was just helpful in that regard. Uh, we also do things like our catechism. Right? I just want you to know that the catechism is not just some kind of ritual that we have put into our Sunday mornings. Uh, our catechism is, is working to establish us as a people in sound doctrine. Right? Uh, on occasion, every other week or so, we, we recite the Apostles' Creed together. And, and when we do that, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're working to be a people who are established in sound teaching, in sound truth. Uh, and when we, when we read together the Apostles' Creed, we're agreeing with thousands of years of church history. Uh, and these, these things, these, these truths, these are what, they, they root us, they, they ground us uh, deeply in the truths of who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, what it means to be his people, so that when the storms come, because you know that they will, we have something solid that is, that is holding us together. And, and you might say, well, what about, you know, what about Scripture? Well, I'd say things like our creeds and, and our catechisms are, are rooted deeply in Scripture. But it's interesting, I think I've found that, that sometimes in the most treacherous seasons of life, Scripture has a tendency to, like, evade my mind. But sometimes things like the creeds and catechisms don't. And within them, you still have sound doctrine uh, by which to hold on to uh, that prevents you from being pushed and, and swayed by 
every little bit of information that's coming your way on a regular basis. The reality for us, church, is that we are a people who are being formed. Uh, And the truth in that is that we're being formed or deformed. And our hope and our prayer is that we would be a people who are formed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ as his disciples. And so that's why uh, we've been doing what we've been doing the way that we have been doing it. And so as we hit Matthew chapter 19, uh, we're going to continue to hit the brakes. And we're going to spend uh, at least the next four weeks in Matthew chapter 19 Uh, looking at what Jesus has to say about, really, this text shows us what Jesus has to teach on uh, marriage, divorce, sex, and singleness. And so that's the trajectory for the next several weeks. Uh, It's all at once incredibly challenging, uh, but at the same time, incredibly practical. And so uh, as we get into this, a couple of more things that I want to say is this. Um... Number one, I know that your experiences are complex. I know that reading this text, just reading this text, does all sorts of things to your heart, your soul, and your mind. It brings up questions, and you're like, oh man, where are we going with this? Divorce, I don't don't want to touch that topic. Sex, uh, let's not go there. But Jesus is Lord over all of that, right? And so Jesus invites us to uh, boldly and humbly go there and, and to learn from him, remembering that his, his yoke is easy and in his burden is light. Right? Like Jesus continually invites us into a, a way of life that is flourishing if only we would surrender to him and submit to that reality. And so... Um, I will do my best, Uh, Pastor Will, when he gets up here and talks on this text, will do his best uh, to understand the complexities and the realities of your circumstances. I know that some of you are here and you're like, marriage, yes, awesome, love marriage, it's going great. Others of you are single and you're like, don't talk to me about marriage. (laughs) Or you just kind of feel forgotten all the time. Uh, We don't want to do that. We also don't want to see anyone as like a token single person either, right? Uh, Jesus cares deeply for single people. Others of you have have walked through divorce, perhaps numerous divorces. Uh, And and Jesus' words are overwhelming uh, for that. Uh, Others of you are in marriages right now that you would just rather not be in. It's like a daily grind and slog. And you're wondering, like, how are we going to continue to push forward in this? You know, or uh, you just find yourself in, like, in like a cycle, right? Where you're like, I thought it was going well, but we're back here again in this, like, pit or valley or whatever it might be. Uh, and I think Jesus in, invites us in to, to listen, and he cares for us, and he shepherds us through those things. So I understand the complexities I also want to acknowledge, though, that uh, what Jesus has to say on marriage in Matthew chapter 19 is not comprehensive. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll tackle these specific things, marriage, divorce, sex, singleness, but um, what Jesus has to say is not all that there is to say on the topic. 
uh, as, as we'll see later today, and as we'll see in the coming weeks as, as people who are disciples, um, we're, to, we're to understand the whole of Scripture and how it points to and, and informs the way that we do marriage and, and sex and singleness. Okay? And so uh, Jesus' words, man, it's, it's super condensed, right? And so uh, we have to understand what he says in, in, in the broader context of scripture as a whole. And so we're going to do our best to do that. And so we'll uh, bounce around a bit in scripture, just as Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, And the hope and and prayer that I have for us is that we would just uh, continue to be grounded and and rooted deeply in the love of Jesus. And and really my prayer is that that he'll meet you wherever you're at. Uh, And and I just, I I want us to be assured of that, like that he is our, our very present good shepherd. Uh, he, he walks with us through the darkest valleys and through the highest mountains, whatever they may be. And so my hope and prayer is that we would rest in that reality uh, this morning. So with that, let's uh, just look at our text here. Uh, the first thing that we need to see in this text is that there's an obvious transition, right? So look there at verses one and two. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So this is just a a kind of a classic transition for Matthew. He wants us to see that there's a different direction. So um, just a a few things for us to to see here. First off, we see that Jesus goes away from Galilee. So Galilee has been the space in uh, in the north end of, well, yeah, well north of Jerusalem, where Jesus has been uh, living out his public ministry. That's where his public ministry was hosted. And uh, he will not return again to Galilee until after his resurrection. So Jesus is done in Galilee. And the text tells us uh, that he traveled beyond the Jordan. Now, this is uh, an interesting phrase. Uh, There's kind of a question as to, like, what did Jesus do? Where did he go? And why did he go there? Um, the question is, did he go, because uh, Judea is to the west of the Jordan River, and so the, the, the scholars, the commentators speculate that Jesus would have gone um, to the east of the Jordan, perhaps to avoid Samaria. I don't, I doubt that though, uh, because Jesus was obviously pretty bold to go into Samaria, right? John chapter four, he was more than willing to walk right through the town of Samaria, I, my speculation, and, and, this, and it's just that, um, is that I wonder if Jesus went to the east of the Jordan River, uh, because one of the things that we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is a, the, the better uh, Israel. He, he is the fulfillment. He is the culmination of the story of God's people. And, and one of the things that I'm, you know, I've been reading through the Pentateuch, and so in Deuteronomy, the picture that you have in Deuteronomy is of the people of Israel east of the Jordan. Uh, still in the wilderness, waiting to enter into the promised land. And so my own speculation, I can't help but wonder if Jesus is just doing that. Like if Jesus finds himself east of the Jordan, looking west, uh, preparing to enter into the promised land and fulfill uh, and accomplish what Israel themselves could not accomplish. I don't know. Either way, that's what Jesus is. He's he's heading down towards Judea. His, His his ministry is changing, it's transitioning, his eyes are on Jerusalem. That's what's taking place. And regardless of any of those details uh, that may be uncertain, what is certain is that Matthew's emphasis is on 
the followers, right? Verse two, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Uh, and, and what Matthew does over and over and over again is his, in his gospel is he likes to highlight people as followers, um, as those who will eventually become disciples. And so I think this is the question that's supposed to carry us into what Jesus has to teach on marriage and sex and singleness and parenting and so on and so forth, because that's where the trajectory of Matthew 19 takes us. After, after dealing with marriage and singleness, uh, we get to learn about children. And after children, Jesus jumps right in and talks about money. Right? And, and so I think the question surrounding these things is, will you follow Jesus with these like when we, when, we, when we talk about being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, we're talking about the entirety of our lives being surrendered underneath of his lordship, underneath his reign and rule as king. But I think, interestingly enough, I think there are some things that we like to hold back. And I think often we like to hold back our, our marriages. Like I don't... I don't you know, I think I can handle it on my own. Although if you've been married for any length of time, you probably know that that's not true, right? Uh, but, you know, our parenting. We like to think that we can be in control of our kids. Yeah, that's what Jesus said. <laughs> or, or our finances, right? It's interesting how, how stable we can feel financially until all of a sudden it's gone, and so the, the, the picture, I think, that Matthew's painting for us and the direction that Jesus wants to, to give us and the question that he wants to ask us is, will we surrender these things too? Right? That our marriages, our, our kids, our singleness, our sexuality, our finances, our stuff, all of it belongs to the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to be his follower, is that we're surrendering all of that to him. And, and we're recognizing that we're not the ones best left in control of those things. And so, will we follow him into this space is, I think, what Matthew is setting up. Okay? So with that, uh, let's move into this uh, next portion here in verse 3 through uh, 12. And I get three points for the rest of our morning. Number one, we're going to look at uh, the brokenness of marriage. And then uh, number two, we're going to look at the beautiful design of marriage. And then number three, uh, we're going to look at the better marriage for everyone. Okay. So number one, the brokenness of marriage. Look at verse three. Uh, some Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So uh, we enter once again into a confrontation in which the Pharisees attempt to trap Jesus. Uh, again, this was normal in the life and ministry of Jesus over and over and over again. Uh, the religious people, Pharisees, Sadducees in particular, uh, and scribes, this group was attempting to trap Jesus in some way, shape, or form. They were always trying to get him to say something or do something uh, that would essentially lead to his own demise. Okay? And so, uh, but here's the thing is, in doing this and asking this question, what the Pharisees do is they reveal the broken reality of one of the closest relationships that we will ever experience in this life, which is marriage. Okay? So maybe I'll just, you know, kick it off with this. How many of you, for those of you who are married, 
um, or have been married have discovered that marriage is hard. <laughs> yes. I thought to myself, I want to ask something that everyone can agree on this morning. <laughs> there it is. Marriage is hard. Uh, man, hard is not even a strong enough word. Uh, the word I you know, tried to pick is brokenness. I don't even know if that covers it. And, and what, the, what the Pharisees do is they just, they just expose this reality that, that it is broken. And, and this is something that we've all experienced. This is a reality that we all live in or have lived in or, or will live in. And, and, and even if it's not marriage, you, you and I have all experienced the reality of broken relationships in some way, shape, or form. And so I think at this point, it's important for us to be aware of something. Do you all remember what came before Matthew 19? Yes, I know. That's good math. Good job, John. (laughs) Matthew 18. (laughs) Yeah. Forgiveness. Hear hear this. I I don't think it's coincidental that in Jesus' teaching to us on what the kingdom community is supposed to look like, uh, we, we have this picture of what, what does it look like for us, you know, cumulatively one another, uh, to forgive one another. And then it carries over into this relationship of marriage. Like, I, I don't think it's accidental that what leads us into marriage is teaching on forgiveness. And I know that automatically that's like, oh, do we have to go there already, Mike? Come on. Just remember, these are the words of Jesus. Um, Forgiveness in the kingdom community. And this reality is to be lived out in our marriages. Our marriages, we need to understand, are not separate from the kingdom community. We work through and walk through these broken realities amongst one another, not in isolation. But now here's what happens. The question arises from the Pharisees, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Um, Pastor Will is going to delve more deeply into the issue, the topic of divorce next week. Good job, Will. Um, I am going to say just a few things about it here this morning. I'm just kind of giving us a broader overview of this whole text. Um, and so there's a few things that I want to highlight that I think are revealed here, okay? Uh, and, and the first is this, is that there were, there were two primary schools of thought when it came to divorce. And so the Pharisees, uh, no doubt, have this reality in mind. Uh, and what they're doing is they're quoting a text from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And the section of scripture there, it's, uh, in our Bibles, it's Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And it's in verse 1 uh, where this particular word or phrase is mentioned that the Pharisees are calling in to question. And that phrase is, uh, as our translation here in Matthew says, is any cause. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, another thing to highlight here, um, it was only uh, possible for men to divorce their wives in Jesus' culture. Wives could not divorce their husbands. So you have that uh, coming into play. But then you also have uh, what's coming into play here is this interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so there were two schools of thought. Uh, You had basically, for lack of better terms, you had a a conservative train of thought and a liberal train of thought. And so the conservative uh, thought was in the school of Shammai. Shammai was, was a rabbi. 
Okay? Uh, and his whole uh, teaching uh, was, was very hard and fast conservative uh, in regards to Deuteronomy 24. And what he would say is that the only, the only grounds for divorce was adultery. So uh, when he looked at Deuteronomy 24, the word there is indecency, any indecency, um, or what we see in the New Testament, any cause. What, what Shammai, the school of Shammai, considered to be any indecency was specifically the sin of adultery. And so that was his hard and fast line. The other school of thought, though, was from another rabbi, and his name was Hillel. And Hillel was uh, a more liberal teacher, uh, and he was so liberal, in fact, that the way that he taught this was that any cause meant just that, any cause, or any indecency. And that indecency or that cause uh, was left up to the interpretation of the man. And so a common uh, thing that maybe many of us have heard uh, is it went as far as like a man could divorce his wife if she burnt his toast. It was, yeah. Any, any indecency. If, <laughs> some of the ladies are laughing. <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> um, yeah, it was that bad. And so we, that was, it, was, it was literally any cause. If a man found anything that he just simply didn't like, he had the, the permission, the ability, the power uh, used wrongly to give his wife a certificate of divorce. And so this is the text, this is the situation in which the Pharisees are, are questioning Jesus. And this is the specific situation that Jesus is addressing. So this is why I say that Jesus is not comprehensive here in his teaching on marriage because he's answering a specific question in a specific context. So it's important for us to understand that all all at the same time, understanding that the whole of scripture culminates to give us a beautiful picture for marriage. At any rate, the Pharisees reveal to us this broken reality. Um, They are not concerned about divorce and marriage here. Understand that. They don't care. The only thing that they're trying to do is trap Jesus. And so their hope is that they can somehow get him to say something that would be unsatisfactory and thus antagonize those of differing positions and thus create trouble for himself. That's all that they're doing. But I think the text is doing something more. I think in this text, The brokenness of marriage is revealing something deeper, and that's just simply the overall brokenness of humanity. I suppose I can can make it clear for us this morning. Jesus is not for divorce. It's, It's not God's intent. It's not God's plan. It's not God's desire for marriage. And I know that that hits really hard for some, right? Um, but I think that we can, regardless of past, present, future, um, we can trust our Lord, okay? And so Jesus wants to, he wants to attack the issue head on. And so what Jesus What Jesus wants us to see is that the real issue at the heart here is hard-heartedness. Right? 
Notice what he says there in verse, well, yeah, verse seven. The Pharisees said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Note this, Moses did not command a certificate of divorce. If you go to Deuteronomy 24, there is no command that says thou shalt divorce. Moses allowed. Moses made a concession, which we'll talk about here in just a little bit. But notice what Jesus says. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. What Jesus goes after here is hearts. What Jesus is going after in you and I is our hearts. Now, um, okay, I'm going to say this knowing that it's going to land just very differently for you all. Um, For those of you who are married, the issue in your marriage is you. Right? How, how are we doing? Okay. I, I, again, I know. I, I know the stories. I, I hear what you're saying. I hear you. Um, I know. But the tendency in our marriages, the problem, tends to be ourselves. Right? Paul Tripp, he has a, a, one of my favorite books on marriage. Uh, it's now just called Marriage. Uh, I think it's like six gospel principles because that's what Paul Tripp does for everything. He's written the same book like 20 times. Genius. Gospel principles for life. And then he just renames the title, Parenting Marriage. Anyways, uh, it used to be called What Did You Expect? It used to be called What Did You Expect? And now it's just called Marriage. Um, and part of Tripp's uh, point, message in that book is that uh, a lot of what messes up our marriages are, are false expectations, right? Wrong expectations. Uh, expectations that are just too high, most likely. Maybe not high enough, I don't know. Just either way, wrong expectations, uh, but then he, he, he delves into um, just this reality of our own hearts. And he, he says some things that I think are helpful. Uh, so just a couple of quotes from him. He says this. There are a few couples that understand the one thing they need to understand in order for lasting change to take place in their marriage. They think their battle is with the other, or they think their circumstances in which they find themselves are what need to change. He said, hold on to that. And let's just ask, do we agree? Right. And maybe you don't. I, I can speak for myself. I believe, I, I have experienced that reality. I don't know how many times in my own marriage I've thought to myself, if Abby would only. Right. Or, or if this whatever would only. And here's, here's the challenge. There's truth in that. I'm not saying that, in saying this, I'm not saying that the only one who needs to change is you. But what needs to happen in the context of marriage is that both need to see that you are the problem. Okay? He goes on and says, but here's the reality. 
all of the horizontal battles are the fruit of a deeper war. The most important war, the one that needs to be won, is not, that, is not the war uh, they're having with each other, but a war that wages within them individually. And, and, and so I think what Tripp says here can be applied in, in two directions. The first is this, is that we need to understand that, that Satan would love to destroy our marriages. I think, I think this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to, to just wrestle with personally. I am, I'm quick to ignore what Paul teaches us in Ephesians, right? that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness that are, that are waging war on our souls, and so at the, at, the heart, at the heart, I mean, central to, to many of our problems is just this very real spiritual reality that I think we just need to be more aware of and, and, and prayerful in. And again, rooted in sound truth and, and doctrine in. So the horizontal Right? The horizontal issues aren't, aren't just across the table from you. It starts in your own heart. It starts in your own soul. But he goes on, and he says this, because what he gets at is that the issue is sin, which this is, which this is what the Pharisees are, are revealing. Right? So he says sin turns us in on ourselves. Sin makes us shrink our lives to the narrow confines of our little self-defined world. Sin causes us to shrink our focus, motivation, and concern to the size of our own wants, needs, and feelings. Sin causes all of us to be way too self-aware and self-important. Sin causes us to be offended most by offenses against us and to be concerned most for what concerns us. Sin causes us to dream selfish dreams and to plan self-oriented plans. Because of sin, we really do love us, and we have a wonderful plan for our own lives. That is a hard heart. That is, that is living a life opposite of Jesus' kingdom. And so understand that Jesus' point and Paul Tripp's point is not to brush aside the sinful reality of your spouse. I know that you know that your spouse needs work. We know. And you've probably made that aware to them. Right? The, the challenge in, in Jesus' admonition Tripp's admonition is to look at ourselves first. And, and this goes, again, back to the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus teach us there when it came to judging others or calling out sin in others? What did he say? He said, first, take the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye or sister's eye. Right? Jesus isn't saying don't judge. He isn't saying don't call stuff out. He's saying there's a process. There's a proper way in which we're supposed to go about it. And it begins by pulling the log out of our own eye. 
And he did the same thing in Matthew chapter 18. In teaching us how to forgive. Right? Jesus, he draws our attention to what? To the mercy of God in our lives. Right? You have the, 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 the servant who had been forgiven a bajillion dollars, remember? An unpayable, insurmountable debt who then went and refused to have mercy on his fellow servant. And then the, the parable questions and asks, shouldn't you have had mercy as I had mercy on you? Right? Doesn't a, a recognition, doesn't an awareness and an experience of the mercy of God transform the way in which we are merciful to others or forgiving to others? I think so. Right? I think so. And so we know our spouses are sinful. We know they need work. But we look at ourselves first to pull the log out, to see God's great mercy, and then to extend mercy the Apostle Paul, again, he puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, giving, kind of giving us this, this vision of, of, of who we are in Christ. Okay? Um, he says this in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for who their sake died and was raised. Okay. So if I could, I would just, I want to invite you into that reality with Jesus. There, there is actual transformative power in the finished work of Jesus. I, that, that for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, what that means is that we are, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from a grave. Right? And so that, that means then that you and I, regardless of the other, are controlled by the love of Christ. Okay. Um, and and this, is, this is the reality that we are to live into and in light of. Right. I think more and more we're becoming just too quick to I guess to, guess to just trust in Jesus for his transformative power, right? Like, I, I, how many of you believe that? You know, like, I, I know that, you know, I, somewhere in your mind, like, it's there. I know somewhere you're like, yeah, gospel, cool, it's awesome. But, like, do you believe in the present transforming reality of Jesus? Right? And, and I don't, like, I don't, I don't think that it's something that we can, like, conjure up, uh, and make happen, like, I think it just is. <laughs> and I think in part, it's, it's, it's for us, this, it's what we've been working through in the, the gospel of Matthew. It's, it's learning the way of Jesus. It's, it's looking at his, his life and saying, I want to I live like Jesus because we're actually intended to live like Jesus. 
And as Paul's words say, to be controlled by Jesus. And I, I think that that's more transformative than anything else that could be offered. And the tension is this, is um, your spouse might not think so. Right? Well, and I know that that's some of your realities. Uh, and so, again, though, that's where the question like, comes into play. Like, if that's the case, like, will you go to your knees and pray for that transformation? And maybe it doesn't happen in your marriage. I, Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it happens someday. I don't know. But I can't, I just, I don't want us to miss sight of the resurrected reality of Christ in our lives. We, We believe in a risen, ruling Lord who has power over everything. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated Hell, he can change you. He can change your spouse. He can heal that which is broken. And, and, and what we know is that that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to restore the beauty which was lost at creation. And so that's our, our second point, is the beautiful design of marriage. So we, we, we know <clears throat> we live in a, a, a world in which the reality of marriage is a broken one. Okay. Um, and so what Jesus does here is he responds to the Pharisees' question, and I want you to notice that his response is genius, because Jesus is a genius. Right. Uh, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't actually answer them. I love it. Right? Like, they're like, Jesus, can you tell us how to interpret Deuteronomy 24, verse 1? And Jesus is like, I'll do better. Let's go to Genesis 1. Because what Jesus wants us to understand is that we need to, we need to understand the original intent, like the original design, the framework that God originally put into place. And so look at what he does. Again, verse four, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So, They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here's here's what Jesus is doing. Again, he's showing us that divorce is anything but commanded. And he does so by by skipping their question, by, by skipping that text and going back to the original intent of marriage. Now, this is, this is where this gets tricky. Um, Jesus isn't overriding what Moses has said. Moses indeed did make a concession for divorce. But what we need to understand about that, again, it wasn't God's intent. What it was, was it was, it was put in place in order to limit the damage of sin. 
So let me try to reword this, and then I have a quote for you. Uh, let's just do the quote. <laughs> so uh, Esau McCulley, he, he wrote a book called Reading While Black, and uh, you can choose to get hung up on the title if you want, but uh, what he says is this. He says that Jesus shows in this, referring to this text, that every, not every passage of the Torah presents the ideal for human interactions. Instead, some passages accept the world as broken and attempt to limit the damage that we do to one another. This means that when we look at the passages in the Old Testament, we have to ask ourselves about their purpose. Do they present a picture of what God wanted us to be or do? They seek to limit the damage arising from a broken world. In other words, what he gets at and what Jesus understands about Deuteronomy 24 is that that is a concession that's put there to limit the damage that exists in a broken world. And just because that concession is there in the Old Testament does not mean it is a thou shalt, this is how it should work or be. And so therefore, Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis in order to then show us what the intent, what God's intent for marriage was and is. And what we see is that it's beautiful. And so I love this. Notice Jesus' question, have you not read? So what is, what is Jesus inviting us to? What's he inviting us to? The Bible. <laughs> yeah. Scripture. He is inviting us to, to have a proper definition of what marriage is, and he does so by going to Scripture. Hear that again. Jesus goes to Scripture to define marriage. This is very important for us to understand. Scripture defines marriage, not our culture and not our government. So, in other words, the culture around us will tell us, does tell us, that marriage is da-da-da-da-da. Civil union, loving relationship. I think there are numerous things in our world that exist that are marriage-like, but are not necessarily marriage. And so Jesus takes us to Scripture to define for us what marriage is. And so therefore, when we, as disciples of Jesus, want to understand what marriage is and what God's design for marriage is, where ought we to go? Scripture. Good. Also, understanding that it isn't just one text that defines marriage. It's the whole story of the Bible. I don't, I don't know if you've seen this, but the whole story is a, a story of, a, of marriage, right? I mean, think of it. it. It begins with a marriage in a garden. Right? One of the primary metaphors that God uses for himself as his people is bride and groom, all throughout the Old Testament. Right? Like whenever Israel's doing jacked up stuff, they're called adulterers. They're, they're called whores. Like it's intense, and God's saying, like, my people continually commit adultery on me. That's, that's what he's getting at. Jesus comes on the scene, and who's Jesus? He's the bridegroom. He's the groom. Who are we? The bride of Christ. 
How does the Bible end? Marriage. It is the story. Right? And so that, that just, again, this is, and this is regardless of whether you're married or not, like, this, this has to kind of focus us in on the importance of what Jesus is teaching and, and why it's necessary for us to have this definition. So how then does, how does God define marriage? Well, it begins with this. It begins by seeing the other as an image bearer. It begins by seeing the other as an image bearer. This was, this was a huge problem. Still, it's a problem. But in Jesus' day in particular, plain and simple, it's, it's so hard even to try to separate this. Men objectified women. Not a lot has changed. Like, it's still the problem. And I'm, I'm sure that women objectify it as well. I just don't understand how, okay? So I'm just, I'm speaking from my personal understanding and awareness and experience. So ladies, I'm just inviting you to fill that in the way that you need to fill that in, okay? Or, or, or ask, here, put it like this. How are you dehumanizing the other? This is what Jesus seeks first and foremost and primarily to restore by drawing us back to the Genesis 1 text. He, he wants us to be drawn there because what does it communicate to us about humanity? Well, that God made them, male and female, in his image. That, that male and female are equals. Absolutely equal. Co-heirs, co-rulers. I find it to be so interesting that in Genesis 1 and 2, men and women are given the same responsibilities. Right? They, they co-rule together with God. And so it's, it, it, things begin to shift for us when we begin to see the other as made in the image of God. In other words, an implication of the gospel is that we don't objectify, we sing. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, from Genesis. What happened when Eve was put before her husband? He sang right? He's saying, Adam, Adam goes about having to uh, name all the animals, right? And understand that, that naming the animals, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a representation of authority or dominion. Adam needed to see that he was alone, that he was needy, because that's what God said. He said, it's not good to be alone. And so Adam goes through naming all of the animals, and he recognizes there's nothing here like me, and so then God takes out of his side and makes a woman. We'll talk about those details at another day, okay? But the woman then goes before Adam naked and in all of her glory, and he sings, right? He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I think when we begin to see the other as made in God's image, we stop objectifying and we start singing. I think that's an implication of, of the gospel. Of, of, it's this picture of restoration. This is what Jesus entered into human history to do. Okay? 
Second, Jesus teaches us that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Again, this is the ideal. Jesus is drawing back to the ideal reality, one that's broken, but one that still exists, and one that we still ought to desire. Um, and so Jesus, what he does here is, is he quotes Genesis 1.27, right? In, in verse four there, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, what's interesting about this is this, is that Jesus did not have to quote Genesis 1.27 to prove his point. Because Jesus, he could, have just, he could have just left it at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and that would have been sufficient, this, this picture of the two becoming one flesh, because that's the question at hand. Is it okay for them to separate? And Jesus could have just said, no. Genesis 2, 24 says that the two become one flesh, and that's how God intended it to be. But instead, he goes out of his way to also quote Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And so what Jesus highlights here, what he does for us, is he, he clearly defines what makes marriage. And what's required for godly biblical marriage is um, a man and a woman. Right? Sexual difference. Like we, we just... Again, this is what Jesus defines this as. And so what we need to understand is that anything that is outside of that is not marriage, regardless of what our culture calls it. Right? We, we, are, we understand ourselves distinctly in the church as God's people, and we understand marriage to be this, to be distinctly defined as between one man and one woman for life. And so this is what is highlighted here. And it's, it's this picture of Jesus wants to see here that there is, a, there is a likeness, but an oppositeness right? that is required for marriage to actually take place. And so Jesus is emphasizing that marriage then is this one flesh union between a man and a woman. How then is that supposed to work itself out? Well, ideally, these two would hold fast to one another. And in, and in doing this, what Jesus is doing is he's just emphasizing the seriousness of the covenant. Okay? When Jesus teaches that a man and a woman are to hold fast, he's not, he's not referencing what we would understand to be the nuclear family. Right? He's not necessarily saying that a, a man and a wife need to leave their home and go kind of start their own thing somewhere else. Understand that in Jesus' day, in Genesis' day, it was very normal for extended families to be living together all under one tent or something like that. <laughs> and so he's not just giving us a, a picture or definition of what we understand family to be. What he's highlighting is the seriousness of, of, of what has been brought together in this one flesh union. Okay? And so they are to hold fast to one another. In other words, we don't look for ways out. We look for ways to stay committed. Jesus goes on and he teaches us that we're to, in the context of marriage, enjoy sexual intimacy, right? That the two shall become one flesh. That's what this is. This is a gift from God that is to be delighted in and enjoyed in the context 
of marriage between one man and one woman. And then he goes on and says that they are to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth. That is to create a family that resists the devil. That's the families that we're to be creating. Families that resist the devil. And why is this all so important? Because Christian marriage is intended to reflect Christ's love for his bride. That's why this matters. That's that's why we have to hold to the distinctness of what Scripture defines as marriage for us. And what you get, we know this from right Ephesians 5 or just from the life of Christ, is this, this picture of a, of a man in particular laying his life down for his wife, nourishing and cherishing. Right? It's interesting in Ephesians 5, again, the nourishing and cherishing, this picture of a man, there, it's not macho, guys, just so you know. There is a gentleness in what is painted in Ephesians 5 for us. A gentle caring and nurturing and and cherishing this woman that Christ has given to you. And in so doing, there's something, something in this, some mystery in this that is revealing the gospel in some way. I I don't know how to define it, and neither does Paul. He says it's a mystery. Right? Now again, I know, that we, I know that we just like did a lot there. Uh, we're going to cover it more in the coming weeks. So if you're here and you're like, but what about, or what if, or I, again, I know that we have our scenarios and our situations, by God's grace, we'll cover those things in the coming weeks. For now, all I want us to see is that Jesus draws us to the original intent. That's how he answers the question. He shows what God's design is for marriage. And it's this picture between a man and a woman committed to one another in one flesh union for a lifetime. And it reflects Jesus' love for his bride. It's amazing. Number three, the better marriage for everyone. Now, this might be a stretch in some way, shape, or form, but I was trying to find another B word, so that's what I got there. (laughs) It went with my outline. But at the same time, the point that I think gets made here in this text is that uh, the better marriage for any of us is in being united to Christ. Right? So notice that this is, this is how the text ends, right? Um, the disciples, in verse 10, said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That's their way of saying, this sounds really hard, Jesus. Like, that's what they're saying. They're like, you, okay, you just set like a super high bar. I don't know if I can handle that. And again, I think that gets to the seriousness that we're supposed to take in going into it. But he said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have, been made so, who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. We were at home group the other night talking through this text, and someone said, I'm just excited to learn about the eunuchs. And I was like, that's so awesome. No one's ever said that. <laughs> In a few weeks, we'll get there. It's the single people. That's what the eunuchs are. Um, here, here's, here's what I want us to see as we close out this text. Jesus 
was a celibate, single man. At the very least, that's what he was from an early vantage point. But we know that he was and is a man committed to his bride, the church. And so this is what we're to understand, is that regardless of marital status, what is better for us is that we are united to Jesus. Because here's what, here's what this does. It, it, it removes, no, it doesn't remove. It, um, it changes the expectations. Part of, part of the problem in some of y'all's, ours, marriages, is we just put too much on our spouse. Like we actually expect them to do what only Jesus can do. And if you're doing that, you're crushing them. You know, like, just like embrace that. I can't be Jesus. I can be becoming like Jesus. I can't be Jesus. Right? What, what, what we each need is Jesus. What we each need is to see that we are, we are in Christ. We are united as, as the bride to our husband. That is Jesus. And so to be in Christ is the best thing for us. This is the better marriage for everyone. Only Jesus can truly satisfy us and put everything else then in its proper place. And so that, that might be the takeaway question for you, regardless of your marital status, right? Married, single, doesn't matter. You need to ask yourself, how is Jesus putting everything else in its proper place? Right? Knowing that one day, we're going to meet this Jesus face-to-face. Right? And uh, our earthly marriages, they're going to, I don't know, they're not going to be. Which sounds bad, I guess. I don't, some of you are like, no, it sounds awesome, actually. <laughs> and that's okay, because Jesus is better. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our ruling, reigning Lord and King. Let us be surrendered to you, submitted to you over our lives, over our marriages, over our singleness, over our sexuality, over our parenting, over our money, over all of it. You are Lord. There's not one square inch over all of this in which you don't declare it as yours. And so, Lord, help us, regardless of where we are this morning, to, to entrust all of this to you. Uh, I pray as we respond with songs and communion that you would search our hearts and that you would just draw us to yourself, and uh, that we would rejoice that we belong to you. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen.